I want to tell you a story tonight that happened to the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, and he wrote it himself. So we have all the details. In a letter in 1938, he wrote the following story. He said, in 1913, 25 years back, he was on a train riding to Petersburg. At that time, in the previous Rebbe's life, he was doing a lot of communal work for his father and was constantly traveling between the small town of Lubavitch and the big city of Petersburg on behalf of the Jewish people, doing a lot of things to annul decrees, to help with uh, support that was needed for Jewish organizations. And so on one of these, let's call it typical or standard rides, he says, I was sitting in second class and on the car with me were some statesmen, Russian statesmen and Christian priests, along with some good Yiddish boys. So quite an eclectic crowd. And that year, 1913, was the 300-year anniversary of the House of Romanov, which is the Tsar's family. It was a big deal in Russia. They were celebrating the tercentenary, I think that's how you pronounce it, 300-year jubilee of this family. And the Tsar was making a big deal about it, and Russia was on wheels. So the topic in the car wasn't like today, everyone's on their iPhone and no one talks to each other. Everybody talked, and they were discussing monarchy. The concept of a czarist family, one family that rules it all and has all the power. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And they specifically wanted to know what's Torah's position on it. So you had Christian priests and Russian noblemen and Jews arguing about what the Torah says on monarchy. So the previous Rebbe said, I'm sitting in the car and I'm listening. I didn't take part in the conversation. Some people said, Torah is for monarchy. That's Torah's position. One king with all the executive power and that's it. Another person said, no, Torah's values are socialist values. Torah wants a democratically elected government, and they should decide that everybody should have an equal part. The third opinion says, no, Torah's communist. Torah's values are communist. Government, but the government decides everything. Back and forth, and each one's bringing proofs from the Torah to show that his position is correct. So the previous rabbi said, I didn't participate in the conversation, but after a while, some of the Jews came over to me, they saw I'm the rabbi. So they said, you gotta, you gotta weigh in here. You know, you have Christian priests saying what the Torah thinks. What is the Torah belief? So the Friedrich rabbi said, all of you are right. There's a philosophical principle that says, ain tov below ra, there's no such thing as good without bad, and no such thing as bad without good. That's intrinsic to everything in this world. Therefore, any party, any faction, any approach in politics is going to have good parts and bad parts. However, the rule of good and bad mixing is only in humanly created things. In the Torah, which is created by God, we have the good of every party. That's why everybody found the proof in the Torah, because the Torah, being that it's the ultimate truth and the ultimate goodness, has the goodness of every political approach. Tonight, we're learning letter number 13. And the Alter Rebbe in this letter makes the same case about the Jewish people. Just like the Torah incorporates within it the good 
of every possible element of the spectrum, so too does a Jew in his service of God have to look to incorporate every possible part on the spectrum, every possible way of serving Hashem. We have to find a moment or a day or a time period in our lives when we bring that into the way we serve Hashem. In its original form, the letter was actually, like many of these letters that we're learning, an appeal for tzedakah. And we're going to see how it ties into tzedakah later. It's written in 1792, one of the earlier letters of, uh, of the Alter Rebbe. Nevertheless, the thrust or the main conversation is about this concept. And the, uh, the Kabbalistic word for it is hitkalalut. Hitkalalut means, the best translation I can come up with is integration. The idea that everything holy is never polar. A bi- one of the biggest proofs or the biggest litmus test to know if something is holy is if it can handle opposites. If somebody gets too rigid, it can't be holy. holy. Holiness allows for inclusion. Holiness allows for unity and within diversity. And here specifically, the Alter Rebbe talks about it as it relates to the Jewish people. The Jew has to look for hitkalalut in his own service of God. You see the panorama of emotions or the different attitudes that a person might have to serving Hashem. Your job is to find a way to make everything a part of it. Now usually, when uh, Hasidic discourses go into this conversation of incorporation or you know, bringing together the different factions, the general breakdown is Torah study versus good deeds. That's the typical breakdown. Some people are the ones that are the scholars. They sit and learn Torah all day. The holy people, the inspired people, the spiritual people. Other people are the business people, the lay people. They're involved in the world. That's their reality. And every person has to incorporate the other. person that learns Torah all day has to make it a point to find ways to give tzedakah and to, more, to be more engaged with the world. And the person who is business-oriented has to find a way to learn Torah. I actually saw today, actually fascinating, two clips, two opposite clips of the Rebbe on video. Twice a year, in the late 80s and early 90s, the Rebbe used to hold a special audience for the members of the Machne Israel Development Fund. This was basically a fund that uh, the Rebbe established to further Jewish activities across the world. And any person or couple who gave over a certain amount, I forget what number it was, was allowed into this club, let's call it, and twice a year they had a special audience with the Rebbe and an opportunity to go by and engage personally, which was very rare in those days. The Rebbe stopped all private audiences and there was no time to interact personally, but if you were part of this fund, then twice a year you got an audience before uh, Yom Kippur usually and before Pesach. So one clip, you see a guy he goes to the Rebbe in this, in this moment, and he says that uh, last year, when I came to New York, the Rebbe encouraged me to give tzedakah. And I took upon myself to give tzedakah without a limit. Not 10%, not 20%, whatever the Jewish organizations around me need, I give. And 
and he says, lately I'm having a problem because my business is going down, my investments are costing me way more than I thought it would be, and I need a bracha because I want to continue to do this work, this tzedakah that the Rebbe wants me to do. So the Rebbe said, you have my blessing, but what you should do is you should add a certain amount of time to your day when you study Torah. So here he's telling the Rebbe he wants to be the tzedakah champion. And the Rebbe says, your, your vehicle to blessing is to add some Torah. Then I see a second clip. And another guy goes by the Rebbe. He says, thank God I've made enough money to live comfortably. I don't need to work anymore. I don't need to be in business anymore. I want to dedicate my life to Torah study. I've done my, my part in the world. Now I want to sit back and learn Torah all day. And the Rebbe says to him, that's great. You should make it a fixed part of your day to study Torah, but you should stay in the business world. And the Rebbe said, it's strange to hear it from me talking about business. But you can have more influence and more power as a successful businessman who also learns Torah. Your friends will be inspired when they see you can do both. You can be a committed Jew who finds time to learn Torah even when he does business. So the Rebbe encouraged both people to take upon themselves the other side. The guy who was, I want to tzedakah, he was like, learn some Torah. The guy who wanted to learn all the Torah, the Rebbe said, be involved a little bit in, in tzedakah, in business. That's typically how we talk about the integration. There's a, a fascinating story in the Talmud where Rabbi Hanina ben Tradyum, who was one of the great ten martyrs that we read about on Yom Kippur. There were ten sages that the Romans killed brutally um, as part of the decree against the Jewish people. He was one of them. He was actually burned at the stake, wrapped in a Sefer Torah. We read about this on Yom Kippur in graphic detail. And uh, in a time period before this horrible death, he went to visit another sage who was sick, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma. And he came into Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma's room where he was lying on his deathbed and they're talking. And he says, you know, you're on your way to the next world. So you have some insight sometimes of what's going on behind, behind the curtain. So he says, Rabbi, tell me, am I destined for the life of the world to come? So Rabbi Yossi is lying on his deathbed. He says, tell me, anything happened to you recently? Tell me a story that happened to you recently and I'll know from your behavior whether you have the world to come. He says, yeah, actually quite recently I had a story. I was walking down the street and my two pockets had money. One was tzedakah money and one was money for Purim, for the Purim feast. And uh, it was like a personal thing. You know, I put it aside to have a, a good, a good suda and Purim. And the monies got mixed up. I forgot which was tzedakah and which was my own money. And what I did was, I gave it all away to tzedakah. So Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma heard the story. He said, oh, if so, you're destined to olam haba. That's the mice. So the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, but in a different book, he says, I don't get it. First of all, 
There's nothing greater than giving up your life for the sanctity of God. Dying on Kiddush Hashem is the greatest virtue ever. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, shortly after this episode, lived out that commandment. That's the greatest reward for Olam Haba. And even if he didn't know that was coming, he was a scholar. He was a scholar from the Mishnah. We know his teachings, one of the greatest rabbis. Does he need to know whether he's destined to Olam Haba? And Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma can't come up with a better answer than when he mixed up his money and he gave it to Tzedakah. Oh, that's the proof. What about all the years he spent learning, learning Torah? That doesn't count for anything. So the Alter Rebbe says, very powerfully, <clears throat> sometimes, just because you act good and you check off all the boxes, doesn't mean you're working hard. It could be that Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion was disposed naturally to the study of Torah. God gifted him with an incredible mind. So he was able to do all of these wonderful things in terms of studying Torah. And that was it. He checked off all the boxes. It would be an easy path. To deserve the life of the world to come, the true life of the world to come, the true godly experience that's going to be when you get to the next world, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma challenged him. He said, have you ever bent your nature in a way that wasn't your natural tendency? Torah, that's your home court. You have all the advantages there. I don't want to hear about your Torah study. I know you've done well. Is there another field of Jewish life where you did something that hurt? So he said, yeah. Even in the area of tzedakah, of monetary matters, I was able to conquer. When the monies got mixed up, I didn't just divide it half and half. I didn't find the loophole to sneak out of it. I gave it all to tzedakah, and my own bank account suffered. And later on, the, the later Rebbe has developed this point in bringing out the concept of integration. That every Jew has to find within himself. You're, des- you're, you're, you're predisposed naturally to one way, but make sure to do both. That's the, the general division of, uh, of responsibilities. But in this letter, the Alter Rebbe does it a little differently, and that's because he's looking to an appeal to tzedakah. He sets it up in a different way. He says, the two factions, the two types of Jews that I want to integrate tonight are what he calls yimin usmo, the righty Jews and the lefty Jews. Not, the, not politics, not right-winged and leftists, but the Jews that are more right-minded and the Jews that are more left-minded. What's, what's right and left in the service of God? So, oh, in Kabbalah we're familiar that right is reference to chesed, to generosity, to giving, and left is gevura, withholding. Al-Tab says that's exactly it. The left-minded Jews, they're the ones that serve God with the power of tzimtzum, of contraction, of concealment, of quiet. Their trademark is uh, less noise, more limitation. And he says it could express itself in a multitude of ways. You have people that serve God um, with melancholy. They cry a lot. Like holy depression. Kind of, that kind of a thing. They're not looking for attention. They're very tzanua. They're very uh, modest. 
They're not the guys that are looking for the front wall or anything like that. They, um, they learn Torah, but they do it in secret. Everything is limited. And Alter Rebbe says, and it, it spills out in their approach to mitzvahs. They're very limited. They do just what they have to do. I have to learn how much Torah do I have to learn, Rabbi? Tell me how much it is. Oh, they do the half an hour, done. How many mezuzahs do I have to have? They, just, they do, just tell me whatever I have to do, and that's what I do. How much tzedakah do I have to give? What's the, what's the limit? And they give only that. So they're always looking to get, just get by. Left approach. The right approach, right as in the direction of right, is chesed. Generous spirit. He doesn't go into detail, but you can assume it's the opposite of everything. They're the guys that are very expansive, very broad. Everything is done with fanfare. They're doing a mitzvah, they're going to make a big deal about it so everybody knows, so they're going to encourage other people. They're going to a class of Torah, they're, they're studying Torah themselves, they're going to make it into a big shturim. In their performance of mitzvahs, they're never looking just to get by. Shturim means a storm. In their in mitzvahs, they're never looking just to get by. They always want to do the top. Rabbi, get me the highest quality lulav, the most expensive matzah, the nicest menorah, everything. Tzedakah, and he zooms in on tzedakah because this is what he wants to talk about. They give with no limitation. They're not interested in 1%, 2%, 10%. Whatever I can give, I'm giving. I'm just giving and giving. And... The job of the holistic, wholesome Jew is never to be satisfied with one extreme. Find the good from both sides and adapt them. You get too generous. Before you know it, you're spending all your money on mitzvahs and there's no responsibility in, in your accounting. So you can say, you can blame God for your financial mistakes, but then it doesn't pan out in the right way. Sometimes you need a little limitation. The guys who are too depressed, sometimes they need to dance a little bit. Be a little joyful. You need both. For whatever way it is, you need to find both. Dr. Abbey gives a couple of models for this in the Torah itself, where we find fusion. Two of the greatest schools of Jewish debate were Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. They're all over the Mishnah, all over the Gemara, debating everything. And if you look, <clears throat> as a theme, Beit Shammai are always strict. More exacting, more demanding. If it's a question of kosher or non-kosher, non-kosher. Qualified or disqualified, disqualified. Obligated, not obligated? Obligated. They're always on the side of chumrah, what's called being of, of stringency. Beit Hillel, the school of Hillel, they're always on the side of leniency. Obligated, not obligated? Not obligated. Guilty, innocent? Innocent. Allowed to do it, not allowed to do it? Allowed. They're always on the side of what's called kula, leniency. 
And the Alter Rebbe says, it's not just because they perceived everything through, you know, hard, demanding glasses, and Beit Hillel saw everything through kind glasses. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. Their souls were rooted in different holy lights. Beit Shammai's souls came from the spiritual level of divine givura, divine sovereignty, strict justice. So therefore, they saw everything in Torah with that lens. Beit Hillel, their neshamot, came from chesed. Their neshamot came from chesed, kindness. So they were always predisposed to being kind in their Torah rulings. Yet, there's a chapter in the Talmud that's called the leniencies of Beit Shammai and the stringencies of Beit Hillel. There were so few that the Talmud made it into one list, but it's a whole list. A couple of cases where Beit Shammai went to the lenient side and Beit Hillel went to the stringent side. Why? Because they were living out this principle. You can't just be strict all the time. You can't just be permissive all the time. Sometimes even the permissive parent has to find a way to do discipline. And sometimes even the helicopter parent has to find a way to let go. You got to have both. It doesn't say it in the Tanya, but I think that these two schools of thought got their models from their teachers. The school of Shammai was taught by Shammai. The school of Hillel was taught by Hillel. One of the most famous stories in the Talmud about Shammai and Hillel was when there was a convert who approached Shammai and he said, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. I want to stand on one foot and you give me the whole thing. And today everybody asks for the Parsha in a nutshell. You know, give me the Torah in a nutshell. So the Talmud says, Shammai took out his ruler and he pushed him away. But Hillel, the guy went, came to Hillel. He said, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. And famously, Hillel gave him the golden rule, that which you don't want others to do to you, don't do unto others, and the rest is commentary. So the Hasidic masters ask a question. Shammai wasn't as smart as Hillel. Shammai couldn't distill the Torah into one line like Hillel could. And even if he couldn't, why push him away? They say, listen, I don't have the answer. Go to my friend Hillel. You know, he'll give you the answer. And why does the Talmud make a point to mention that it was a ruler? Pushed him away with a ruler. Maybe pushed him away with his hands. So the Rebbe explained this very concept. Shammai embodied exactitude and precision. There's no such thing as nutshells in Shammai's playbook. Shammai was a ruler. That's how he operated in his Judaism. Everything had to be exactly defined. So you can't come and say, uh, give me the shortcut. In Shammai's worldview, there are no shortcuts. When he pushed him with the ruler, he was basically telling him, my life doesn't allow for these kind of questions. Hillel was the opposite. He embodied divine generosity. And he was able to find a way to give him one thing that would encapsulate everything in the Torah. And so from that came the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, same thing. But nevertheless, they both found ways to incorporate each other. The other model for this, the Alter Rebbe gives, is Avraham and Yitzchak. Avraham in the Torah is associated with love for God. Yitzchak in the Torah is associated with fear of God. Yet, at one critical moment, Avraham became 
the embodiment of divine strict justice when he took a knife and was about to slaughter his only son. Avram, who was the epitome of chesed, shouldn't be able to do that. He would have to defy Hashem. He says, I can't. My chesed doesn't allow me to. Yet he was able to do that. And what is the very next verse that the Torah says there? Atayadati. Hashem said, don't do it. But now I know, ki yirei elokim ata, that you fear God. It's a very, very precise wording. Now I know that you fear God. Without the story of the binding of your son, you could think it's just one big chesed life, one big giving life, one big love life between Hashem and Avraham. But now that you were able to also integrate the other side, now I know you fear Hashem too. And Yitzchak did the same in the other way. The Torah still refers to Avraham as generally love because that was, that, was, that was what came out of him. There's always a generality. A person is always more or less on one side or the other. And that's how you typically refer to them. But they're able to, uh, to be both. And that's real holiness. The Altar says in Kabbalah, everything is a mirror of the higher realms. In the higher realm, that's how it works. There's no polarity. In every expression of God, you can find all the expressions. In Chesed, sometimes you have Givura. In Givura, sometimes you have Chesed. You ever see a parent take away a knife from a child? It looks like Givura. It's a tough move. And yet it embodies Chesed because the tough move is actually a kindness. You take away the knife so the child doesn't self-destruct. So that's the story of Hit Kalalut. That's the story of integration, divine integration. Every Jew has to find within himself a way to be everything. We're choosing right and left. We're choosing it just two general categories. But the idea is to be the everything Jew in some way or another, to find a way. Every possible way of serving God. You see somebody else serves Hashem in a certain way and you go, ah, I want some of that for myself. The Rebbe writes in Hayom Yom, which is a small little book that he made with like aphorisms for every day. One, one of the days he writes that Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our father says, Eizehu Ashir HaSameach Bechelko. Who is rich? He who is happy with his lot. But, says the Rebbe, that's only for physical possessions. In your spiritual life, no such thing as being happy with your lot. When you're talking about money, physical assets, be happy with what you have. When you're talking about your service of Hashem, always look up. Find somebody who has more and say, I want some of that. I want to bring some of what they have into my life. So that's, that's the general, that's the letter, let's call it. That's the whole thing. But the closing point is the clincher. Alter Rebbe says, there's a verse in Tehillim. David HaMelech says, there's so much good that you've hidden for those who fear you. And you've also, for those that trust in you, you've given them kindness that everybody could see. There's tons of good that you've given to those who fear you. And to those who trust in you, you've done a lot that everyone can see. 
So on the, on, the, on the literal level, it seems like Hashem is just saying, for those that serve Hashem, it's always going to end up good. Those that fear you, Hashem has a lot of good in store for you. Those that trust in you, Hashem will ultimately bring it out in front of everybody. But the Alter Rebbe says, this verse is actually describing how the Jewish people, no matter what side of the spectrum they're on, have everything. Echa, those who fear you, are the people that serve Hashem with the left side. And yet, David HaMelech says, in those people you've hidden, it's not apparent, but you've hidden, Rav Tuv, a lot of good, a lot of generosity, a lot of giving. And not just you've hidden a lot of giving, but as much as the other ones who trust in you, the ones who you can see in Neged Bnei Adam, it's apparent. Their giving spirit is apparent. The people who it's hidden in have as much good as the one who it's apparent in. In other words, the Altair makes the case that not just does every Jew have to incorporate both, but every Jew ultimately has the capacity to have as much as every other Jew. You look at another guy, he's so generous, he's so giving, and you go, I, can't, I can do a little bit, but I can't have it to that, to that, to that level. Says David HaMelech, no. Every Jew, even those that fear, those that live on the side of the left, have hidden inside them the capacity to give as much as those who have it on the right, as those who have it in a revealed way. And that's why the, the next verse in Tehillim, David HaMelech turns to God and says, Tastirem beseter panecha, because all the Jews have everything, you can give every Jew equal treatment. You can bring them all into your sukkah, you can bring them all into your protection, because every Yid has the Rav Tuv, has lots of good. And then, in the part of the letter that's not uh, included in the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe makes his ask. And his ask is that being that both the obviously generous Jews and the Jews who have to find it within themselves have the capacity to give to the very same level, therefore I'm asking, says the Alter Rebbe, that you reach deep into your pockets and give a ton. Give according to that level. Give commensurate with the measurement of divine generosity that you have in your soul. Talks about a specific collection he was collecting for. There was apparently a group of, uh, of immigrants who were trying to make a community and it wasn't working out for them. And so a rabbi came in and set up a soup kitchen for them. And they were trying to fund it. It was a whole thing. And for four years, the Alter Rebbe made a collection for this specific community. But his point was that every single Yid, first of all, has to do everything. You have to find across the spectrum where you can integrate. And once you do that, know you have the promise that you'll be able to achieve the highest level of whatever it is that you want to achieve. There's no such thing as a Yid who says, I'm more on this side of the spectrum. I'll do a little bit, but I can't do it all. No. The Jew, like we started in the beginning, Nisan, we're in, but we're out. We look like regular people of the world, but in the end, we have supernatural powers that allow us to do, be the jack of all trades and the master of all. Chaim.